All right, everybody settled? Everybody settled? All right, there we go. Okay, open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We're jumping right in, church family, this morning, continuing our study of the book of, of Genesis. Buckle up. We're going to cover a lot of ground uh, this morning. We're going to pick up today in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and we're going to find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, with humanity in a pretty bad spot, in a pretty bad place. At this time and place in history, look at what it says about the human condition. The Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Strong words. This is a picture of humanity that is not a pretty one. It is literally telling us that this time and place in history, humanity as we find it, nobody is seeking to love God. Nobody is seeking to love their neighbor. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know about you. Does that sound like a world you'd want to live in? <laughs> Doesn't sound like a world I would want to live in. In fact, some people would say, man, look at the world today. Look at how bad it is. I guarantee you it's not as bad as it was back then. And in fact, because of this wickedness in its manifestation, it says in verse 7 these words, God speaks. He sees it and he decides, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, a difficult verse to read. God looks at creation at this time and place, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe the face of the earth clean. I'm going to start fresh. He says, I'm literally sorry that I have made them. The way that they're acting, the way that they're behaving. And just to let you know, this takes place, again, Adam and Eve were, were created perfect in the garden. Their sin led to sin entering into the world. Their one son kills another son. There's been two lines of humanity, kind of a righteous line and an unrighteous line. But at this point in time, everybody is wicked. And so here's what we learn. Number one, sin and evil and wickedness, it produces, it's grievous to God. That's one of the things that we're learning about God here. The, the, the sin and the evil and wickedness it produces, it, God grieves over it. He doesn't want it to be that way. And secondly, God does not let sin go unpunished. He's telling us here that the world being this way requires a judgment. He hates sin. He hates it because he loves his creation. And when he sees his creation reject him, he sees that they ultimately turn in upon themselves and they destroy the creation. And he's like, I'm going to put an end to it. Now, we looked at some of these verses last week, and, and I want to revisit something, but in a different way. We here at our church, we read the scriptures, and we have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, meaning that God is in control over all things, that nothing happens without that being part of his plan and his purposes. And, and that includes our salvation. It's a gift of God. You, you don't enter into salvation apart from his work in, in your life. So, when we read an Old Testament passage like this or any passage in the Old Testament where you see wickedness running rampant and then God actually kind of like grieving over it, the question pops up in the mind, and I think, I think rightfully so. If God knew the evil and the suffering that was going to happen, why did he ever create us? Why did he let the world go on? 
if he's a sovereign God who's all-powerful, and there's wickedness and suffering in our world today as it was back then, if he's in control, why doesn't he stop it? Why does he allow it? Why did he even create us to, to begin with? Have you ever wondered that question? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we all have. I know I have. I know I still do. Things happen in my life. In fact, I believe that whenever we ask that question, what we're doing is we're actually personalizing it. Because typically, an evil or a wickedness or a suffering has come to us or somebody that we love. And because of that, we look at that and we say, listen, if God is supposedly in control, how can things be this way? Why would he let these things happen? Well, today I'm going to give you an answer, at least the best answer that I can give, and it begins with this. We don't yet know. But, but, but pay attention to what I'm saying here in the beginning. We don't yet know. We don't yet know, but what we do know is that it must be worth it. All that suffering, all that evil, all that wickedness, it must be worth it. Why? Because God could have stopped it, but he didn't. And not only did he not stop it, he chose to suffer with us in it. Are you you following the, the, the mathematics of that even? Like the logic of that. He could stop it. He chose not to. And, and so in choosing not to, and we know that he works all things together for good and for his, his glory, we know that there must be a reason in it that we do not yet know. Because where my heart runs to is this. If it's happening, if the suffering is taking place, and God hasn't seemed to intervene to, to stop it or, or to remove that wickedness or, or that evil, my mind ultimately runs to, I can't see any good reason. I can't see any good reason why he would allow it to continue. And, and so that's where we run to, right? Because I can't see any good, good reason. And in our humanity, that, that's true. But every time that I find myself doubting or questioning what God is ultimately doing and thinking that there can't be any any good reason behind it. What I run to is all the other times I was wrong about something else. (laughs) Have you ever been wrong about something that you were so sure of? In your reasoning, you thought it absolutely must end up being this this way. Like, like, I'm I'm sure on this, and then come back later, and somebody's like, no, you're wrong. You're like, oh, I was. If I believe that I can be wrong about other things, I believe I could be wrong about this. And so my choice is, will I trust and choose what God's word says, or will I... Or will I hold to my imperfect, finite human faculties and being able to reason through it? Because Paul would eventually say these words, for this slight and momentary affliction is storing up for us a weight of glory beyond anything that we can imagine. And that's why I say we don't yet know. But what we do know, what we do know is he could have stopped it, he chose not to. And just to show how much he's invested in us and in this whole thing, he suffers with us in it. In Genesis, it shows us that he's grieving over the wickedness. In the New Testament, we see Jesus dying on a cross. That's how greatly he will suffer with us to bring about what at this point we can't imagine is being ultimately for our good. That's my best shot at what God has to say to us when we read a passage like like this. And we want to know this because ultimately what we're going to see here is God is in chapter 7 and 8. He's ultimately, he's going to bring about the judgment. But before he brings about the judgment, look at verse 8. And then this is a great verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love that little verse. Judgment is going to come, but 
Although humanity is royally messed up, God still chose to provide salvation for a remnant of humanity. He's going to judge humanity, but he's going to spare one family, specifically the family of a man named Noah. Big question, why? Why does he spare? Why does he spare anybody? Why does he save anybody? Why doesn't he just wipe all humanity clean? Because at the end of the day, Noah is is still a sinner, right? And, And so like, why is he sparing Noah? Genesis 9, or Genesis 6, verse 9, a lot of us run to this and we say, well, here's the answer. Are you ready? Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Well, there's the answer. It was because of how good Noah was that God chose to save Noah. That, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. At this point, if you're playing a game show, you'd hear the buzzer go, ah, wrong answer. He doesn't save Noah because of the righteousness of Noah. That's not what the text says, the text says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, no doubt we can hold up Noah as an example of what it looks like to walk with God in a wicked generation. He was righteous in that he looked to do right. He was blameless in that it's describing his moral conduct. But ultimately, the reason why God spared any portion of humanity from the flood is because, are you ready for this? God keeps his promises. God had said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, one day from your seed, from your offspring, I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent, meaning who will undo what the serpent had brought about. If God kills all of humanity in the flood, if he doesn't save a remnant, then he's not going to be faithful to his promise to Adam. See, God spared a remnant of humanity because God keeps his promises. And the reason why he spares Noah particularly is because God is choosing to show Noah grace. He was not a sinless man. Noah was not a perfect man. He is illustrative to us, as we're going to see in just a moment, of of what it looks like to walk with God. But ultimately, God chose to save Noah and his family because he keeps his promises. And he chose, in looking upon Noah, to show his grace to, to, that, to that man. This is important for us to know if we're going to understand ultimately what's about to happen. Because in verses 13 through 21, God speaks to Noah now. Um, in chapter 6, verses 13 through 21, he tells Noah exactly what's going to happen to humanity and, and Noah's part in that future. He tells Noah a couple of things. He says to Noah that he's going to send a catastrophic flood that's going to kill every living thing. But he's going to spare Noah and his family by placing them and two of every kind of animal in an ark, a large boat that Noah is going to construct. Stop here for a moment. Have you ever put yourself in Noah's shoes? Could you imagine hearing this? Could you imagine being the person that God comes to and says, you see the wickedness, you see what's going on, I'm going to wipe it all clean. But I'm going to spare you, I'm going to spare your family, I'm going to save you, you're going to repopulate the whole earth with all these other animals, and the way that you're going to be spared is you're going to build this vessel of a size and a scope that was never known in the world at that that time. How's that sound, Noah? I can imagine Noah's thoughts would have run in a million different directions. Because... Like, just take, for instance, what God was asking him to construct. Do you know the size of the ark? 
Um, it's measured in cubits. We don't know exactly the exact size of a cubit. It's either like 18 and a half inches or 20 and a half inches. And so by best estimates, people say that the length of the ark was 510 feet long, that it was 85 feet wide and 51 feet high. That's just some of the estimates that could be given for, for the ark. If you actually want to see this vessel with those dimensions today, you could go to Kentucky and they have a thing called the Ark Encounter. It's, it's actually quite... It's quite fabulous. Um, I want to show you a picture, not of that, but, but of the ark in representation or in comparison to some other things today. There's a football field. There's a house. There's a nuclear submarine. Why they picked a nuclear submarine? I don't know. No, but the nuclear submarine, and then there's kind of the ark. This is what this vessel would have looked like, and God is asking Noah to build it. Now, in God asking Noah to do this, We've already heard that the generation in which Noah lived, were they a lovely set of people who seemed like they would go out of their way to help their friend and neighbor? They're wicked. They're evil. Do you think they made Noah's job easy as he built this ark? Do you think they were like, can we come over and help? Oh, please, we'd love to help. I am sure they mocked and ridiculed him. And what God was asking Noah to do in building the ark was making Noah's life exponentially harder. Don't miss that because what happens next is unbelievable. Verse 22. Here's what Noah does. Noah did this. He did some of what God commanded him. Is that what it says? It says he did all that God commanded him. We must not pass this verse by. In fact, this verse is where we actually find one of the first takeaways from this passage, by God telling Noah to do all that, that he did and commanding him to do it, Noah was, was entering into a far more difficult life. And, and, and I'm, I'm running a, there's a balance here of what I'm about to do because I just told you that Noah did not deserve to be saved. God did not owe Noah anything. Did you hear me on that? It was of grace that, that, that God chose to save Noah. Anytime God saves, it's all of grace. And yet, and yet, God's word is very clear that we must not, like, look at Noah and just pass him by. We must not exalt him. He was just a man. But God also uses him in his word to serve as an example to us of what it looks like to be a people who walk in faith with God. In fact, we can say that because the Bible says it. Hebrews eleven seven. this entire chapter about the, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, this whole chapter was written to show us how the saints of the Old Testament model for us the kind of faith that we are supposed to have, the kind of lives that we're supposed to have. And it says of Noah in Hebrews eleven seven, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. So Noah hadn't seen this kind of stuff. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What's Hebrews telling us? You can look at Noah, and you can look at his life, and you can be careful not to exalt him, but to say he is an illustration to us. He is an illustration to us of of what God would desire for his people. And here's our first takeaway. Are you ready? Noah shows us that recipients of God's grace obey what God commands. If, If you want to know what we're to take away from Noah's interaction with the Lord here is that he shows us that recipients of God's grace obey what God commands. 
Noah did all that God commanded him. God came to Noah and said, you found favor with me, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I want you to do in light of that. Noah took that, received that, and then he did everything that God called him to to do. It is so important for us to understand that Noah did not obey, Noah did not walk with God in order that God would ultimately save him. Ultimately, Noah obeyed and walked in obedience to God because he was somebody who had received the grace of God in his life. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of of God. Recipients of grace obey what God commands. There are two things that I often find within Christianity that we kind of get jumbled. And the first is what I was just kind of talking about, and that is we look to obey God in order to receive grace or love from him. That is, my friends, as I tell my children, that's a no-no, right? We don't function in that way in relationship to God. You don't obey God and you don't walk in his ways so that you would merit favor from him in order to save you, in order for him to love you. But what the Bible does proclaim is that when God pours his grace upon you, when you understand what he has done to save you, that obedience flows from that. Titus 2. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce worldly passions and an unrighteous life, to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. Paul is saying, do you get it? If you understand grace, you understand that it alone saves you, but when it saves you, it doesn't leave you as you are. You then walk in obedience to him, and that's what we see Noah actually illustrating for us. That The second thing that we often get wrong about obedience to God is this. We think that obedience limits our freedom. We think that obedience limits our freedom. Like if somebody's calling us to do something, then ultimately they're boxing us in. In America, we value freedom and liberty almost above everything else. And anything that you would do to supposedly constrain me, if I have to walk in obedience um, to, to you, uh, then, then, then I don't get to live the life that I wanted. I'm being hindered in my joy. We get it so wrong, though. When God commands us to things, he's commanding us and calling us to that which is life for us. Here's a clear illustration of it. Uh, uh, Someone I was reading the other day had an experience with their child that that actually was similar to one of my experiences. A man was walking with his three-year-old son, and his three-year-old son broke free from his grip and ran into a street with oncoming traffic. And he called out and he yelled to his son, what do you think he said? Stop. That was a command. And now, did, did he give that command because he was trying to constrain his son's joy? That he wanted to keep him from freedom? He commanded him because what his son was doing was leading him to death. In fact, the moment his son stopped, a car, he said, drove right by. One more step and my son would have been killed. Well, that's interesting. Nobody in this room would say, oh, he shouldn't have said that. That boy didn't need to, if he had obeyed his father, he was being constrained in his what? freedom. That's not true at all. That command was given so that he would ultimately know life. Think about what happened to Noah. God told Noah, build the ark. Why? Because he wanted Noah to to not enjoy life and freedom? 
told him to build the ark because it was necessary to what? Save his very life. The guy's going to be sunk at the bottom of the sea if he doesn't build the ark. And so, so listen to me. Recipients of God's grace obey what God commands because what God commands is life for us. Here's the practical application. Is there an area today within your life where you see God calling you to obedience, but, the, but it's something that you know, you know what God's word says about it, you know what God wants for you, but you just simply have said, I, I'm, not, I'm not going there. I haven't, I haven't walked in obedience to God in that because, because I feel like it's going to constrain me. It's going to keep me from my joy. I want you to look at this today and say, are you a recipient of grace? Do you know of his love for you? Do you know what he's done for you? Is there a command of God? And maybe you don't have it. Maybe, maybe you're free of it. Maybe you're like, no, I'm walking in full obedience. 24-7, 365, man, I'm there. But if you're not there, can you look into your life and say, I'm not walking in obedience to this. And then to say, why is that? Because his grace has come to me to free me to walk in obedience to these things. For each one of us, it could be something different. I don't know what it is for you, but don't let today in a message like this pass you by. Noah shows us, listen, if I'm a recipient of grace, there is nothing that God commands me that I don't want to walk in. But if we sometimes look hard enough We'll often find those things. We say, yeah, it's just this one area, though. I've held back from walking in obedience. Don't let today pass you by. Don't stay there. Recipients of grace, we walk in obedience to God's word. Now, that's not all the text says. In fact, now we actually come to verses or chapter 7 and 8. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that in and of itself is a miracle. It's kind of like the flood itself. In the next five minutes, we're going to go through verse chapters 7 and 8. Are you ready for this? So you're going to like buckle up. You're like, I don't believe you. Let's put some bets down. No, we don't do that. We don't do that here. Here we go. In Genesis chapter 7 and 8, we see God, he keeps his promise with his word. In chapter 7, we're going to see the decreation of the world. God is going to undo the world that he's created. In chapter 8, we're going to see the beginnings of recreation. I say that to you because I want to summarize what happens in these two chapters. Decreation, recreation. This is what takes, takes place. Starting in chapter 7, we pick it up with God calling Noah to go into the ark. And he gives him some very specific instructions. He says, here's what I want you to take in the ark. I want you to take your family, seven clean animals, or depending upon your translation, maybe 14, a pair of unclean animals, seven pairs of birds, two of every kind of living thing, and then food for everyone in the ark. Can you imagine what the ark looked like when this sucker was stocked? I mean... It would have been a sight to, to behold. And so Noah does this, and he's 600 years old when he enters into the ark. It's taken almost 100 years from the time that God first commanded him to build it to the time he goes in the ark. And he goes in the ark on the day that it starts raining, the text says. And then verse 16 says that God literally shuts them in. We, we think about them like closing the door, but, but the idea is that God ultimately seals them in. He, God's hand is over the ark and over everybody in the ark. And then it begins to rain. And verse 11 says, like, listen, this isn't just the pitter-patter of rain. Look at verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Forty days and forty nights, it says that it rains. But it doesn't just rain, folks. It literally says that the earth bursts apart at the seam, 
the fountains of the deep, the wells of water under the earth burst forth. This is a cataclysmic, catastrophic, violent event. The earth is literally being made undone. And this happens to such an extent that the text tells us in verse 20 that when the floodwaters finally stop, the tallest mountain at that time was covered by 25 feet of water. Now, some people have asked the question, more recently, was this a worldwide flood? Let me just answer that really, really quickly. Was this a worldwide flood? Well, when we read the scriptures, here's the answers that the scriptures give. The scriptures present the flood as a cataclysmic. I just like saying that word, cataclysmic, right? Just, it just sounds like it is. A cataclysmic and worldwide event. That's how the Bible presents it, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You can look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. They, that verse, along with others, they talk about this new, new world, if you will, being created through a flood that covered the entire world. Now, it really wasn't up until like the 19th century that people questioned this. And the only way that you could read the Bible and, and see it as potentially being a local flood is if you read the scriptures phenomenologically. What does that mean? That means from like Noah's perspective. Maybe, maybe we should read it as though like this is what Noah saw. To Noah's eyes, it seemed like all the world was covered with a flood. The rest of the Bible, though, doesn't present it that way. The Bible says it was a worldwide flood. Some people come and say, does science support a worldwide flood? Depends on who you talk to. Some scientists look at the geological record and they said, yeah, we see evidence here of a worldwide flood. Others come and they say, no, we don't necessarily see that. At the end of the day, though, here's the thing. The reason why science has a hard time trying to decide, do we have evidence for or against a worldwide flood, is that nobody knows what the world looked like before the flood. We, don't, we can't go past that flood event. There's, there's nothing to, to map that out. But folks, here at the end of the day, here's the point. The point is this, and we see it in verse, 20 through, through, or verse 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God accomplished what he said he was going to do. 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. Oh, and those who were in the ark with him. God did what he said he would do. So thorough was the decreation of the world that it says for another 150 days, water prevailed over the earth. He's floating there with all those animals. Nothing is happening. The rain has stopped, but he's just, he's just floating. And then if you picture that, this, this boat, this vessel just floating out there, you just picture it going there. I love then what verse 1 of chapter 8 says. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. It's, it's almost like God was busy somewhere else. Like he had started a project, like you or I at home, right? We're doing it like, oh my gosh, I forgot about Noah. What's he doing? That's, that's not what it was. That's not what it was. But it feels that way. It's, he knew Noah. He remembered his promise. And he sends a wind to begin to help the water subside. And it starts to happen. The waters begin to subside to the point where the ark finally comes and it comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And if you've been watching documentaries or you've gone online, some people wonder, where's Noah's ark? Can we find it? It says it's on, it's on Mount Ararat. Well, it actually says it's on the mountains of Ararat. Here's a picture of what it looks like today. 
Mount Ararat is on the border of Turkey and Armenia. And it's actually not just kind of like one mountain. It's actually kind of a range of mountains. And, and so you could see why it would potentially be, that's a lot of land, right, to try and find an object like, like the ark. Um, who knows if there's still remnants of it there today. Here's something that I would say. I don't think like the ark came to rest on the very top. <laughs> I don't think that was it. Somewhere in that range, the ark came, came to rest. And when it did, eventually what happens is it says this in verse 13. Eventually, they're going to come off the ark. But before they do, Noah's smart. He sends out a raven to go scope out the situation. And now some people wonder, why did he send out a raven? I think it was probably because it was an unclean animal. And he's like, I can spare a raven, right? Like nobody's going to eat the raven. Like he sends the raven out, it comes back. Seven days later, he sends out another bird. This time it's a dove. The dove goes out, it can't find anywhere to land, so it comes back. Seven days after that, he sends out another dove. But guess what happens? This dove comes back with a sign of life, an olive leaf. Noah knows that things are starting to grow. Seven days after that, he sends out a dove again. This time the dove's like, I'm sick and tired of being in that ark. And it stays, right? It says that it doesn't come back. So Noah knows that, that the time has come. And so verse 13 says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. The earth was ready. It's ready to be repopulated. It's ready for the second phase to come about. And by most accounts, Noah has been on the ark 364 days. Depending upon how you count up the days, he's been on this boat for a year. And after a year's time, God speaks to him. Look at verse 16. Here we go. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth. And then he says something that he said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. With these words, God's releasing Noah and the rest of the creation to start over. And Noah doing what Noah does, he obeyed the word of God. Verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons, and his wife, and his son's wife with him. And every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. They're released. And I can't imagine what Noah saw and what was going through his mind because who could imagine? He, he went into the ark with the world looking one way and then he came off. It'd probably be like for you or I going to Mars for the first time. It's a completely foreign environment. It's still the earth, but it's been completely undone. It's, it's being remade, if you will. And so what does Noah do? Verse 20. Here's where we find our last takeaway. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What's the very first thing? that Noah does when he gets off the ark. What's the very first recorded action of Noah? He worships God with a sacrifice. And this is huge and monumental. In fact, the, the monumental nature here of what Noah does is often lost on us unless we put ourselves in that context. 
what does he sacrifice up to God? It says that he sacrifices some of the clean animals and some of the clean birds. God had called Noah to bring the clean animals and the clean birds onto the ark. Why is it such a big deal for him to offer these animals? Do you know what the clean animals were? They were the best. They were the best of the animals. They were the the clean animals. They were the ones that if they mated and reproduced, would have produced the very best for Noah and for his family. And so when he offers up the clean animals, he is offering to God the very best of what was with him. He's not holding back. He's giving the very best. Does that sound like anybody else from Noah's line? Abel did the same thing. He gave the best to the Lord. He did not hold back. But then here's the other part of it. It's not just that he gave God his best in that sacrifice. Listen, the guy wasn't an idiot. He wasn't dumb, and he was a human being just like us. Did you know that at this time and place in history, there is a limited supply of animals on the face of the earth? The only animals that are on the face of the earth are the animals in the ark. Any that he kills, any that are sacrificed up to God, mean that there are now less for Adam and his family. If he gives two of each kind of an animal, if he kills a male and he kills a female, that that line is gone. See, what's so significant here in his actions is he's going to God and he's saying, not only do you get the best, but I'm not worried about your provision. I'm not worried about believing that any of these things belong to me. These are all yours. And you promised that it will be through my line that will come a rescuer. And so I'm going to offer up what is best and what could be used to provide for me and my family, and I'm giving it back to you, trusting in you. Do you see what a profound act of worship is? This isn't just, oh, he made an offering. Isn't that cute? Isn't that, isn't that nice? He's demonstrating the final takeaway, and the final truth that we must understand. Not only do recipients of God's grace obey what God commands, Noah shows us that recipients of God's grace worship God with sacrificial actions. We worship God with sacrificial actions. There was no doubt a cost to Noah and his family to give up the best. And there was no doubt a cost to Noah to give up animals that could have been used for them. But Noah said, God, you are worthy of it because I'm a recipient of grace. You have saved me from the flood. It's all yours. There is nothing of mine that is not yours. In fact, the apostle Paul would get this and he would make it a little more simpler for us when he would say this to the Romans in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul says, if you've been a recipient of grace, like Noah was a recipient of grace, then all of you is offered up to him. There's no part of your life that you hold on to and say, God doesn't get this. We hold it all with an open hand. This is the beauty of what we see Noah doing. But the crazy thing is that Noah was spared death through the flood. We're recipients of grace in that we have been spared and saved from an eternal judgment 
and punishment. Eternity in hell turns into sons and daughters of the Most High because Jesus Christ dies in our place. Noah received grace. The grace you and I have received far exceeds what Noah knew at that time. We know of a greater and fuller grace. And so, so here's where I read this, and the challenge comes to my heart. And when my heart is challenged, I'm like, I'm not going to bear that by myself. I'm going to put it on everybody else as well. And it's this. Are you a recipient of the grace of God? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Do you know salvation through Christ and through Christ alone? If you say yes, amen, I believe that, then you and I must ask ourselves the question, are we modeling the obedience that we see Noah modeling? Are we modeling the sacrificial actions through our lives that we see Noah modeling? Is there anything in my life that I'm keeping back from, from God? He's given me time. He's given me talents. He's, he's given me financial resources. Do my actions demonstrate that the sacrifices in my life in any way, shape, or form are reflective of worship? Or, 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 do, or do the actions of my life only demonstrate that, you know what, God, um, I, could, I could give you some of that time, but, but that's, uh, you know, that, that helps me out a lot. That's kind of a, that's a me thing. Or those financial resources, if I gave that over to you, then that means that I wouldn't get, you know, whatever fill in the blank this, this thing is. Or, or, you know, yeah, I have my gifts, and I could bless other people, you know, with that, but right now I'm kind of conserving my energy because I want to I use it in this way. Noah comes and says, listen, it's all yours. My best is yours. My very best, it's, it's all of yours. Are, are, we, are we a people that understand that to, to show sacrificial actions and worship to God means giving him of our best? Do we understand that it means trusting him to, to provide? This is what Noah shows us. And so my encouragement to you today is listen. Don't make the sacrifices for God so that he will show you his grace. Don't make sacrifices for God because you believe that ultimately he's going to love you and save you because you do. But, but I pray that you would be freed to say he has shown me grace upon grace and that there is nothing in my life that I hold back for me. But instead, I want to see all of my life as a living sacrifice for him. I said it earlier. I don't know maybe what area God might be calling you to obedience that you're not walking in. I don't know what it is for you, what area he might be calling you to sacrifice. But if you have not considered that all of your life is to be offered as a living sacrifice to him, let, let the life of Noah and God's work in his life call you into this life that God wants for you. That's my prayer for you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come away from this text this morning, as I've prayed each and every hour, here's what I would be asking, Lord, protect us. Protect us from falling into reading a passage like this and exalting a man like Noah to to a place, Lord, that, well, that only you belong. Because, Lord, Lord, we know that Noah was a man just, just like us. But what we know about Noah is that just like us, he also received grace. And just as he's received grace, just as we've received grace, Lord, help us to then understand that that grace doesn't keep us where we're at, but it drives us to obedience and to not be content in our hearts and minds, to not walk in full obedience to you. And help us to see that, 
that that grace moves us to sacrificial actions, not sacrificial actions done to earn more favor and more grace from you, but to, but to put on display the fact that, Lord, you will provide for us and that we believe that to be true and that you are, you are worthy of, of the best of what we have. So, Lord, if, if I'm holding anything of my best back from you, if we as a church family in any way, shape, or form are, are holding back what is, what is best for, for you, Lord, bring that to our minds. Convict us of, of those things because we want to walk in the freedom and the joy of a life that really embraces the fullness of the grace we have received. So we pray now, and we ask this through Christ our Savior. And all God's people said, amen.